0: German forces in Italy have surrendered unconditionally to the supreme Allied commander. All German and Italian forces formally laid down their arms just four and a half hours ago. And this is probably the first announcement to the listening world. The surrender of Germany signified the Allies' defeat of an insurmountable foe, and a few months later Japan's defeat in the Pacific ended the Second World War. Back home it was a celebration. Those that served as soldiers, nurses, pilots, scientists, and cryptographers came back to share their stories and how they contributed to victory. Even animals returned home with unbelievable stories of sacrifice and bravery, some of which were even acknowledged as war heroes. Hello, my name is Adrian Floria, and welcome to Pigeon in the Chimney, a one-time pod episode. Over 30 years ago, just a stone's throw away from London, in a sleepy town called Surrey, a lost secret of World War II was found in a chimney. Former probation officer David Martin was cleaning his fireplace when he began to find a strange set of bones buried under the dust. It looked like he had discovered the remains of a bird, and as he continued sifting through the chimney, he found a bright red canister attached to one of the bird's legs. David and his wife, Anne, lit up with excitement because they knew that in fact they had found a carrier pigeon from World War II. This pigeon had been lying in the chimney for over 40 years. Inside the canister, David found a message with 27 groupings of five letters. It was written on a cigarette paper-thin piece of paper. Unfortunately, there was no coherent message on the paper. It was rather a series of random letters with no apparent relationship. The only readable content was the sender's name, Sergeant W. Stott, and the message destination, which was written as X02. At the time, codebreakers at Bletchley Park were preoccupied with the Falcon's War, and the pigeon message was not much of an interesting story. In 2012, David's pigeon finally got enough attention and Bletchley Park took the message in. Curators at the museum could not identify neither the name of the sender, the destination, nor the identity number of the service pigeon to me this raises a few questions could the missing record of the mission be a mistake or was the mission not recorded for a specific reason what kind of information on the encrypted message would require so much secrecy to figure out the contents of this important message david sent it to the government communications headquarters or gchq in britain the team leading the investigation figured out that the message was enciphered with a one-time pad, a very uncommon method of enciphering carrier pigeon messages. This one-time pad originated from Gilbert Vernam, a young graduate from Worcester Polytechnic Institute that worked as an engineer at the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. At the time, at and messages were encoded by a variant of Morse code called Baudot, where each character, letter, and number in the system was universally defined by a string of marks and spaces. In Baudot code, plain English letters and 5-digit bits, as they were called, were translated using a predefined character set. For example, the letter A would have been translated into 00011. In 1917, Vernam realized that this encryption technique led to a systematic repetition of symbols within long passages. Messages were quite prone to cryptanalytic attack, and Vernan believed that a key just as long as the message would reduce re- the redundancies that a frequency analysis could identify. Frequency analysis was a deciphering tool that had broken code since the 16th century. This tool was simply a technique that tallied up the amount of times each specific character appeared in an enciphered message. This allowed codebreakers to determine which letters could represent more commonly used characters, such as E in the English language. Major Joseph Malborn from the United States Army and Vernam noted that a truly random stream cipher would break frequency analysis and produce unbreakable codes. Vernam mm-hmm. and Malborn's stream cipher required two streams of character inputs to create an encrypted message. One input would have been the original message and the other would have been the key. The key would have consisted of a long, randomly generated string of letters. These were probably created through some kind of random data collection from radioactive decay. Encrypting occurred one character at a time using a method that combined the first letter from the message with the first letter of the key. A letter from the message would be replaced with a letter a set distance ahead of it in the alphabet the key would determine how many letters in the alphabet one would have to move from the starting point. For example, if you wanted to encode the message door, you'd begin with the letter D. If the key started with the letter W, then you would have to shift W places after the starting point D. Since W is the 22nd letter of the alphabet, D would be replaced with the letter 22 places after it. That would be, of course, the letter Z. In the case that you would run out of letters after reaching Z, You would have to wrap back to the beginning of the alphabet and continue counting from A. A one-time pad was an application of Vernam's stream cipher. They were these small booklets that were filled with pages of keys, sometimes printed in such a small font, a portable microscope had to be used to read the letters. These pages would be used to encrypt messages exactly as I described. An allied officer would encrypt their message about enemy movement and send it to some other officer a few miles away that second officer would have an identical one-time pad with identical keys to decrypt the message. Decryption was just as easy as encrypting. Just by taking the enciphered message, combining it with the key, and counting in the reverse alphabetical direction, the original message could be recovered. The strength of the one-time pad lies in the randomness of the key. If somebody stole an encrypted message, it would be nearly impossible for them to guess the correct key out of an almost infinite supply of possible keys. If we wanted to try every possible key for the pigeon cipher, we would need a key that has a minimum of 135 letters. Since we can pick any letter from the English alphabet for each place in the 135 character long string, we would have 26 options for the first, Character, then 26 options for the second character, and so on. We would be left with over 10 to the 190th power possibilities for the key. That means if we gave each atom in the universe a unique key, we would run out of atoms and still have enough possibilities for all the atoms in trillions of more universes. Imagine you are currently in battle as a British Army officer during the Second World War. You are told that a squadron of your own men are trapped under heavy artillery from the enemy. There is no such telegraph wires to reach your fellow soldiers, and communication through radio is pretty risky since enemy soldiers are probably listening. Your last hope lies in the wings of your troops' carrier pigeons. As they fly off towards the endangered soldiers, they are attacked by opposing forces, and many of the pigeons are shot down. However. One injured bird continues to fly, and just minutes later, your message is finally delivered a few miles away. Like in this example, many soldiers owe their lives to the amazing services that carrier pigeons have accomplished. It might be surprising to hear how large of an impact pigeons were in World War II, but it helps to understand how we decided these animals could help us on the battlefield. Although they don't empathize with others or have opposable thumbs like us, They do excel in one thing that us humans can never get right. They have incredible homing and navigational instincts. And once the United States and Britain started their breeding and training programs, birds with even stronger homing abilities were introduced to the war. Typical training forced pigeons to move to new homes almost every two or three weeks. This made sure that the birds would learn to constantly adapt to new destinations. The rigor of their training parallels to that of the Navy. World War II carrier pigeons could fly up to 600 miles at speeds of 40 miles per hour. One of the largest pigeon operations conducted by Great Britain was Operation Columbia. Operation Columbia dispersed pigeons all over German occupation in order to gain a better understanding of Germany's position across Europe. To do this, pigeons were put into small containers that would be scattered from a cruising airplane. Then the containers would deploy a parachute and safely land on the ground. Once locals found these containers, they would return the pigeons with statuses and sensitive information about the German army in their local region. This program was huge. Nearly 5,800 pigeons were dropped in 1943 alone. David Martin's location between Normandy and Bletchley Park Britain's largest informational hub during the war, indicates that this carrier pigeon he found might have been delivering a sensitive message related to D-Day. However, this is all up to speculation. The cipher has still not been broken despite many incredible claims. And hey, one more thing. Maybe next time you see a pigeon pecking for crumbs at the park, remember how this strong and intelligent bird served the Allies over 70 years ago. Many people owe their lives to these remarkable creatures. Thank you for listening to Pigeon in the Chimney. I'm Adrian Floria.